Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast supported by Zendesk for Startups. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we peek inside the Sifted newsroom. And every week we discuss the biggest things coming out of Europe's tech and startup sector and speak to some very, very interesting companies and journalists. This week, we've got lots of news because it seems like the PRs have woken up again after their winter hibernation. And we're going to be hearing about some interesting European businesses that have been raising funds, including one that's working on a new cancer treatment and one that's working on self-driving vehicles. And we are also going to be digging into our old friend Checkout.com's latest financials. We're also going to be joined by the founder of menopause and fertility focused employee benefits platform Pepe, which raised a chunky round this week. And we'll be hearing from our reporter, Tim Smith, about a new service for investors to assess entrepreneurs with the help of retired spies. But now let's get into some fundraising news, the bread and butter of the tech worlds, and start off with a very cool business out of Oxford in the UK. It is called Oxcan. And this week, it raised $3.7 million to develop its cancer detection technology. If you've been listening to the pod for a while, you know that we've talked a lot around this boom in diagnostic startups, which are startups that are creating technology to make it easier to find illnesses early so that we can treat them better in humans. And when we talk about diagnostic startups, we always have to mention the fallout from the big scandal around Theranos, which was a supposed blood-based diagnostic startup that turned out to not have any working technology. But Oxcan has shown that its blood testing can actually save lives. So cancer, as we all know, is one of the biggest killers globally, accounting for nearly one in six deaths, according to the World Health Organization, but catching it early can bring about a massive reduction in the mortality rate. So Oxcan, which is actually Oxford Cancer Analytics, has come up with a way of detecting some of the deadliest types of cancer, like lung cancer, at an early stage by using machine learning to analyze blood tests. It's possible to detect cancer early with a liquid biopsy blood test, which is a lab test on a sample of blood that looks for cancer cells from a tumour or small pieces of DNA, RNA, protein or other molecules which are released by tumour cells into a person's bloodstream. It's not always that easy, however, because there is lots of data and biomarkers in any sample and you also won't always be able to tell from DNA if a person has cancer and if they do what kind of cancer they have, according to Oxcan's president and chief operating officer, Andreas Halner. He told our reporter, the fact of the matter is that early stage cancer detection for the deadliest cancers just doesn't exist yet, but that's what we're trying to solve. So what Oxcan is kind of doing differently, which is interesting, is they're focused on proteins in the blood and tailoring their machine learning software to narrow down the search to specific indicators that can let you know whether or not you have cancer out of thousands of indicators that could be available from a blood test. So it's already being used at a number of hospitals in the UK, in Oxford and in Liverpool and in St Andrews. But I think that's interesting that they're not the only startup in the space. Um, I didn't know about many of the other companies that are in this space until we published this article, but there's one in Scotland called DX Cover, which is a university spin-out. 
And they're also using infrared spectroscopy to early detect cancer and identify cancer. And they're starting with brain cancer. And again, similar to what OxCan are doing, they're analyzing the patient's blood to try and detect the presence or absence of disease. And that company has raised $6.2 million. And then in Switzerland, there's one of the best finance startups in the space in Europe, which is Hedera DX, which is using blood plasma to find the right therapy for different cancers. It would be extremely cool, wouldn't it, if a startup that we first spoke about on the Sifted podcast one day could tell us when we're 55 early if we have cancer. It's already January. I'm already in a dark place, Amy. Thank you for taking me even deeper into the hole. Well, now to pivot to another startup whose name starts with Ox and is also, you guessed it, from Oxford. Oxford-based Oxbotica raised a very chunky $140 million Series C round this week to scale its autonomous driving tech. Amy, you edited this one. What about Oxbotica is getting investors excited? And also our team. When it got posted on the Slack channel, like five people were like, this is so cool. We should write about it. Why? Yeah. So Oxbotica is an uh, autonomous vehicle software developer. So it's not actually making the cars themselves. It's making the technology that can make vehicles drive themselves. And it's also not just being used on, you know, people, cars. It's currently being used for self-driving passenger shuttles at airports in collaboration with some some big companies and also automating vehicles involved in wind and solar farms for BP, the energy giant. And both of those projects are set to launch in 2024. It's also working on autonomous vehicles to help streamline kind of goods delivery processes for Ocado, the big grocery technology company. And last May, it passed a slightly long milestone of being the first safe and sustainable deployment of a driverless fully autonomous electric vehicle on publicly accessible roads in Europe when it basically released a vehicle onto the streets of Oxford to drive itself around. I know this is a question that we've asked on the podcast before but are we getting any closer to driverless vehicles becoming mainstream Amy? I think it's still a long way off. So according to a research and markets report, the market is expected to reach 615 billion US dollars by 2030. And last year we did see quite a few autonomous vehicle developments, lots of big vehicle companies buying up these software producers. One here in the UK was that Bosch bought five known as 5AI at one time, which is similar-ish to Oxbotico as an AI startup that's helping build navigation systems for autonomous cars. So, you know, big, big corporates believe this is something that they need to invest in and a future that is coming, but I think it is still a way off. We've also in Europe got Sweden's Enride, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago that raised a big 500 million euro round recently, which is helping get autonomous freight trucks on the road. So I think driverless cars that everyday people use to go to the shops and drop kids off at school, et cetera, a really, really long way away because we've got, there are so many 
other factors at play in those situations. There's busy road crossings, there's different weather, there's lots of different kinds of traffic, there are cyclists, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in controlled situations, like for example, an airport or a warehouse or a farm, that's where we'll see autonomous vehicles come into use much earlier. Well, I'm excited for the day when I get to take one of these autonomous shuttles at an airport. That would be really cool. And before we get on to our interviews, let's get into the latest financial results from payments giantcheckout.com. So the last valuation it got from investors was 40 billion US dollars, which makes it still Europe's most valuable tech company going by that valuation, although it did slash its internal valuation to 11 billion US dollars late last year. So, Eleanor, what did its company accounts from the UK for the calendar year of 2021 tell us? Yeah, totally. So it's important to note that these results are just for its UK entity. So these numbers were from the year through December 31st, 2021. So they are a little while ago. And so for that period, it was loss making. And that's despite the fact that Guillaume Pouzaz, who is the CEO and founder, saying that the company, he said repeatedly that the company is profitable. So I would assume that he's talking about 2022, but we won't see those numbers for a while. So losses dropped 65% on year in 2021 to just $13.4 million. And on the other hand, revenues crept up marginally by just 2.7% to almost $260 million in 2021, which is a big cry from 2020 when revenues increased by 73% on year. It's just kind of interesting to look at these numbers, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, 2021 was obviously the huge boom year still in tech and in payments. Sources recently told the FT that in 2021, Checkout's biggest revenue generating merchant was Binance and that Crypto.com was another top client. And again, also 2021 coincides with crypto's post-pandemic heyday, right? So it's easy to see if Checkout.com was behind those exchanges, then they would have reaped some hefty returns. However, the modest revenue growth in 2021 suggests that those crypto revenues actually didn't go through the UK business. And so it's interesting to see kind of crypto stripped away, whether or not those numbers are more indicative of kind of the underlying business performance. Although when we put that question to check out, they declined to to comment about crypto's role in their revenues. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software and CRM for six months free of charge. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of like-minded founders and CX leaders to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com sifted. Now, I'm pleased to say we're joined on the pod by Dr. Merdula Pore, co-founder of menopause and fertility-focused employee benefits platform, Pepe. This week, the company raised $45 million to grow its business. So first up, congratulations, Merdula, and welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you so much, Eleanor. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit first about how Pepe works and who some of your clients are and who are your users. So Pepe is designed to support employees when they're going through health stages, which are very disruptive to their life and their work. 
you mentioned some of them already, Eleanor, like the menopause and fertility. That's kind of where we started the reproductive life stages, menopause, early parenthood, going through fertility journeys. We will all have either experienced ourselves or know someone whose journey was very disruptive to their life, both at home and at their work, and that caused them to either maybe miss work, make different choices about the kind of work they do, maybe move out of a workplace altogether around these life stages. And so what Pepe does is provides access to specialist healthcare professionals, typically specialist nurses, counsellors, maybe people like lactation consultants, nutrition therapists, fitness specialists, to help you navigate through that journey over weeks, months, maybe even years, um, funded by your employer, free at uh, point of use for you. And then after the reproductive life stages, we also introduced our men's health and women's health services when we recognized that these were also uh, gender-specific health was also something that was traditionally very underserved by existing healthcare. Super cool. You also have some really impressive clients and big companies you're working with. Tell me a few of them. Absolutely. We're absolutely delighted to be supporting the teams at organizations like Disney, Accenture, Adobe, Canada Life, and across a, such a wide range of sectors. So we work with some of the top investment banks and legal firms in the UK, but also with uh, retail banks where we cover all of their staff, including call center, shop floor, retailers, construction and infrastructure, other healthcare organizations, pharma, media, um, you name it. I feel like, you know, your company and the success that you guys have had is so indicative of how the conversation around health and, and well-being has changed, right? I don't think even 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, you know, we would be talking about companies offering some of these amazing benefits. Um, how have you seen that conversation change in terms of health and well-being and how companies are supporting their employees? In the UK, there's been, I'd say, a transformational change and Pepe was here at the right time. Um, but the underlying macro trends have been there. We've got an aging population. Healthcare has been struggling to grow within the current model to meet that demand. And I really see tech as the enabler of facilitating that and making that healthcare provision be much more widely accessible and affordable. As you said rightly, like in the in the UK five years ago, this was unthinkable or very, very rare to think of. Some firms did private medical insurance. Some, um, a lot of firms offered some form of mental health support, and really that was as far as it went. Of course, in other markets like the US, employers have always been the major funder and provider of healthcare for big chunks of the population, but that was definitely wasn't the case here in the UK. What we've seen is the dialogue open up a lot more in every market about how healthcare, specifically women's health, impacts workforce in the workplace. Uh, it's not just something that happens behind closed doors. It, it does have a real impact on organizations in, when it comes to talent attraction, talent retention, absenteeism, presenteeism. For our clients, they, they know there's a business case there as well as it being the right thing to do. I thought it's also interesting that you mentioned men's health as well, right? And I feel like in terms of benefits, you always hear a lot, especially from the media, about how companies are maybe supporting women um, who are thinking about conceiving, right? Tell me about the conversation or like maybe the popularity of men's health as a benefit too. Mm -hmm. So men's health has been incredibly interesting. It's our fastest growing service. And 
the dialogue has also changed on that front. Like you said, it started off with men, women's health, um, bringing up the female talent leadership, keeping women in the workforce. Actually, and then it evolved to a much more mature level of thinking, which is actually this is not a only a women's health and women in the workforce discussion. This is actually a much broader diversity, equity, and inclusion, and health equity in particular starts to, to take the forefront. So people wanted to offer not just for the women, but actually men are underserved. They don't show up at the doctor's office anywhere near as much as women of working age do. They're not habituated to it. Women often go for their contraceptive needs, for their cervical smear tests. You know, we're habituated to going into the GP. It's a normal thing. It's a, you know, uh, it's a familiar environment. For men, they have no reason unless they are sick. And what we see that, ha that happens is that after retirement, uh, men are going into the doctor just as often with long-term conditions, often could have been prevented with early intervention. And so um, men's health really came to the fore because of that. But from the employer point of view, the, goal, the shift is towards providing benefits that are inclusive, that recognize the diverse needs of different parts of their population. They want to offer something that is meaningful to as many segments as possible, rather than a one size doesn't quite fit all. So now that you guys have raised this round, what is next? What international expansion is in store for you? Yeah, so we're in the US now. Um, my co-founder, Max Landry, is now based in New York, um, talking to clients there, building out the team in the US. And really, that was driven by our clients wanting coverage for their US workforce. So we're really excited about that. And of course, continuing to grow here in our home market in the UK. Um, there's still a lot more demand there. So we'll be continuing to focus on both the services, building out our reach for the UK population, and can, of course, continuing to deepen and develop our product and technology. Well, we're looking forward to hearing about that lot more that you'll be doing in the future. Thank you so much for your time. And finally, we're discussing something a bit left field that we reported on this week. We're joined by our reporter, Tim Smith, who's been speaking to a former spy who's also the co-founder of a new service for VCs called Dark Minds. Dark Minds aims to bring expertise from the world of counterintelligence into the process of investors vetting founders as they assess whether or not they're good investment prospects. So, Tim, tell us about the mysterious Dr. C who set up this agency. Yeah, Dr. C was a fairly frustrating interviewee as pretty much every question I asked him was slightly hampered by his signing of the Official Secrets Act, which is the act that you have to sign in the UK if you work with spies. But anyway, what I was able to glean was that Dr. C, who is now working with VCs, has extensive experience of working with undercover officers for many years, had a very high security clearance and was working in the fields of counterterrorism and serious organized crime. Uh, he's got 40,000 hours of clinical psychological experience working in that field. So what we can take from it is, is that his job was essentially to assess the undercover agents who would infiltrate terrorist groups and organized crime mobs. So that was his job. And apparently it's something that's applicable to our world of startup land. Interesting. So what techers is he using to assess founders? 
Yeah, so he has teamed up with a VC called Richard Scaife, uh, who's a partner at a Malta-based VC fund called The Conscious Fund. And they essentially think that the challenges faced by undercover agents in the field are quite similar to those that are faced by founders. So apparently it's things like coping under pressure, avoiding burnouts, what he called... um, behaviorally dysregulated people, people who make poor decisions with risk. And he said that the way that you assess these people are kind of the same. So what they do is they do some psychometric measure testing. So, you know, that's filling in perhaps like Myers-Briggs, but, you know, filling in a a paper questionnaire. That's a small part of it that then leads these quite in-depth interviews that are led by Dr. C. So it sounds quite intimidating to me because, you know, you are going to be aware of his experience, but they do these kind of interviews and then they were also, he said, drawn multiple sources of information. So again, it was quite hard to draw out exactly what these sources of information are. They did say that they can't just go and speak to your friends and family without permission. So it's not like they're, you know, a private investigator who is going to kind of dig up dirt on you in really unscrupulous ways. But essentially, they're trying to get as many sources of information on you as possible to figure out things, whether you're, you know, likely to crumble under pressure, what else they say, whether you're narcissistic tendencies, whether you're likely to be dishonest. And, you know, one of the reasons for doing this is to try and catch out these kind of founders that we talk about on the podcast and then sifted a lot. Your Sam Bankman Freeds, your Elizabeth Holmeses, who, you know, sell a great story, but there might not be that much behind it. So Dr. C said there are very well defined and known ways to tell if someone is lying. So I guess they're trying to bring some of this experience from the world of espionage into the tech world to improve that due diligence process. This sounds absolutely terrifying. This sounds like the worst kind of 360 annual review experience you could possibly go through. How many VCs are they actually working with? It does sound quite terrifying. And there was something about Dr. C where I could just, I wouldn't have liked him interviewing me. He had a very kind of uh, knowing sort of uh, tone in his voice where, yeah, I would feel under a lot of pressure. But anyway, they're already working with a handful of VCs, they say. So, you know, I guess around four or five or something, but they're offering a couple of different services. One is a more involved they do the vetting and Dr. C will be there going through these sources, doing like the full 360 holistic check, as they called it. Uh, and then there's another sort of lower bar service, which they hope will be more scalable, which is kind of training VCs to be able to spot, you know, these kind of tells of when people might not be telling the truth. So they're going to like roll out that training program, which will cost about $1,000. And then the more involved one, anywhere between five to $10,000, they said. I mean, if I was a founder and I was thinking of taking money from an investor and putting them on my board and they said, hey, I want a former spy assessor to dig deep into your psychology and find out how much of a narcissist you are, I think I'd tell them to stick it where the sun doesn't shine and go and find another investor. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I did ask whether this is all a bit over the top. But I mean, what Richard Scaife's response to that was that, you know, in any kind of investment process, the founder is being assessed and often by VCs who have no idea how to assess someone's personality. And what they also said is that, you know, in this game of venture and startups, you are really taking a leap of faith on people. So what they were saying is that they're really just trying to provide a methodology for doing that assessment. And as I said, it's, you know, it's not 
going and digging up information and going through your bins, I don't think, or, you know, speaking to your ex-wife or something. That that seemed to be very far from what they were doing. And they also said that one of the things that hopefully this will mean is that it will unwork investor bias. So, you know, you might think that someone is a bad investment prospect because perhaps they don't look like you, they don't have the same background as you. And that actually this might tell you from the testing and the assessment process that this is a really great team and you should really consider them. So Richard said he foresaw that there might be a lot of cases where investors would not have vested and now they will because of the ability for these tests to cut through those biases. So I do sort of agree that there is, you know, the the instant reaction is that there's already a power dynamic between investors, particularly when money's in short supply like it is now. And does this just serve to amplify that power dynamic and make founders more under pressure, put investors more in the driving seat? You could definitely make that argument. But, you know, Richard and Dr. C think really it's just bringing a bit more kind of uh, expertise and methodology to a process that is probably pretty muddy anyway. So we'll let you make your mind up. But if there's any VCs listening and you want to bring a spy on board, you now know where to go. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tim. And that is all we have time for. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, find all our coverage on sifted.eu. And you can find all the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. And you can follow us on Twitter or follow our newsletters, which are all on our website, sifted.eu. And let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast on Twitter or email hello at sifted.eu. We're always on there. And join us next week. Adieu.